Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that we can enter into your presence. And today we ask humbly that you would give us minds to be able to understand some of the complexity of Scripture. Father, we want to rightly divide the Word of God. And we ask now that you send your Holy Spirit to be our instructor. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the years leading up to 1844, there were two men who were really at the epicenter of the great religious awakening that was taking place primarily in New England, but obviously it expanded from there and began to take the world by storm. We're all familiar with the first individual. His name is William Miller. He was a Baptist who, as he studied the Word of God, found this particular message in Daniel chapter 8, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. As William Miller studied this particular prophecy, he was moved by the conclusion that Christ would appear in 1844. Now, those of us that have been in this faith for a while understand that Miller was correct in the date that he gave for this particular prophecy, but he was incorrect in the conclusion that he gave that Christ would come back in 1844. And we could talk more about that another time. But Miller, Miller began to preach this message with great fervor. And as he preached this message, there were many people that were converted and gave their lives to the Lord. In fact, some historians estimate that some 85,000 people were converted to the Advent message through the preaching of one Baptist minister. That's some powerful preaching, if you ask me. Now, one of the men who listened to William Miller preach and was strongly persuaded by the message that he was presenting was a young man by the name of Joshua V. Hines. He was the second man at the epicenter of this great religious awakening that was taking place in the early 1800s. Uh, Joshua V. Himes was a minister in a church called the Christian Connection. You may have heard that before. And as, v, as, as Joshua V. Himes sat there and listened to William Miller preach, he was convicted that this message could not just stay in that local area, but it needed to be spread far and wide. Himes was a very influential minister who was known as the Napoleon of the press. He was very good at getting the word out. He was very good at printing things and getting the word spread far and wide. In fact, in the Ellen White Encyclopedia, it makes this statement about Himes' work. It says this on page 411. In 1840, he, that is Joshua V. Himes, published and edited the first Millerite newspaper, The Signs of the Times, in Boston. He led in organizing general conferences and camp meetings and published hundreds of pamphlets as well as the second and third editions of Miller's lecture. It goes on. He organized extensive lecture tours for Miller and himself as far west as Cincinnati, brought about the manufacture of the great tent, at the time the largest tent in the United States for the use 
of those tours and established a network of agents, book depots, and reading rooms from Boston to St. Louis. Would you say this guy was energetic or what? He believed the message. He was stirred by the message of William Miller. It was a passionate thing for him. He said, this could not stay here. It needs to go out into the world. He was convinced that something climactic was going to happen in 1844, and he put all of his youthful energy into proclaiming this message in partnership with William Miller. Now, here's the interesting thing to me as I look at this from today If William Miller and Joshua V. Himes were alive right now, under the current Adventist uh, persuasion, under the current climate in Adventism, they would have never worked together. They would have never worked together. Miller, being a Baptist, believed in what we call today the Trinity. He was what we would call a Trinitarian. He believed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Joshua V. Himes, coming from the Christian connection faith, was an ardent anti-Trinitarian. He did not believe the way William Miller did in the do- on the doctrine of the Trinity. They had polar opposite views, almost, on this particular point of faith. However, when it came to the proclamation of the great Second Advent movement, the second coming of Jesus, the investigative judgment, and all the various attributes associated with it, these two men put their differences aside for the common goal to proclaim that Jesus was going to come very soon. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that this doctrine of the Trinity is not important, that we need to just kind of be sloppy in our interpretation of it or just brush it underneath the carpet. I'm not saying that in any way, but what I do want you to see from this story is that for some, it wasn't as divisive as it is in the current Adventist climate that we live in today. In fact, I would suggest that on subjects such of the complexity as the one that we are studying today, we would do well to take the advice of our prophet that the Lord has given to us. In the book Acts of the Apostles, page 52, she says this, the nature of the Holy Spirit, and I think you can also apply this to the Godhead in general, the nature of the Holy Spirit is a what? It is a mystery. It can't, uh, men cannot explain it because the Lord has not what? He hasn't revealed it to them. Men having fanciful views may bring together passages of Scripture and put a what? Human construction upon them. But the acceptance of these views will not strengthen the church regarding such mysteries which are too deep for human understanding. What does she say? She says, silence is golden. Now, again, I don't believe that she, you know, this is just strictly Uh, applicable to the the doctrine or the understanding of the Holy Spirit, I believe it also has a further broader reach to the Godhead in general. It is a mystery. It is something that is so deep. We have to remember when we study the concept of the Trinity that we are talking about God. (laughs) 
And we can't fully understand God. We cannot fully understand how he operates or, or how they interact with one another. It is God. It is be, he is beyond our limited understanding. However, there are passages of scripture and there is divinely written inspired counsel that gives us a glimpse, if you will, into an understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, if you were to go to our fundamental beliefs, this is what it states. Fundamental belief number two, it says there is one God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-equal persons. God is immortal, all-powerful, all-knowing, above all, and ever-present. He is infinite and beyond human comprehension, yet known through his, what? Self-revelation. So this is what we believe as a church, and this particular statement in some form or another, was not officially voted in until 1931. And so those who are of the persuasion of, uh, you know, the anti-Trinitarian persuasion have come up with the conspiracy that the church changed around the 1930s to this aberrant view of the Trinity that we have here today. However, we're going to find in our third presentation, as I uh, take the time to outline some of the history behind the development of this doctrine, that the development of this particular understanding was in the incubator far before 1930. It was actually in the late 1800s that they began to get a better understanding of the Godhead and began to become, the early Adventist pioneers began to become uh, disinterested and unsettled with the anti-Trinitarian understanding and began to switch or develop or grow in their understanding of this particular point. In Testimonies for the Church, volume 3, page 255, the servant of the Lord says this, those who desire to doubt will have plenty of room. God does not propose to remove all occasions for unbelief. He gives evidence which must be carefully investigated with a humble mind and a teachable spirit, and all should decide from the what? Weight of evidence. So God never intended to remove all doubt. He never intended to answer every question. If God did that, why would we need faith? So there are some questionable things. There are some things that we just, as humans, we have to say, I don't have an answer for that. The Bible doesn't speak very plainly to that point. We are going to have to wait until we get to heaven to get a broader and better understanding of these particular points. Now, she goes on and she says this. Three years later, she says, God gives sufficient evidence for the candid mind to believe, but he who turns from the what? Weight of the evidence... Because there are a few things which he cannot make plain to his finite understanding will be left where? In the cold, chilling atmosphere of unbelief. Listen to this. And questioning doubts. And will make a shipwreck of his what? I think we're seeing this take place right now. Because there are a few, and that group is actually growing who cannot make plain to their finite minds some peculiar points of Scripture. In fact, you know, this, this particular understanding, this aberrant understanding of the Godhead is taking our church by storm. We're kind of a little insulated here in Michigan. We have some effects of it. But in other parts of Adventism, this thing is tearing our churches 
apart. And it's taking some of our brightest minds along with it. We need to know where we stand on this, lest we get swept away by this understanding that is, in my humble opinion, not biblical. Over the next three presentations, I'm going to attempt to address these particular points. Today, we're going to take a look at the unity of the three persons of the Godhead. That's our sole purpose in our study together here this morning. Next week, we will take the next two points. That is a fuller, uh, sorry, the full eternal deity of Christ uh, and the personhood and full deity of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were to look at anti-Trinitarian views, they pretty much all boil down to these three points. Number one, that there is not three gods or three that comprise the Godhead. Number two, that at some point Jesus was created in some distant time in times past. And number, th- and number three, uh, number two, and then number three, uh, number three being that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but he is just the Spirit of God. Pretty much most anti-Trinitarian views stem back to these three particular points. So tonight we're going, or this morning we're going to take a look at the personhood, uh, or the, the, the three persons of the Godhead, and then next week we will deal with the other two points. And in my third presentation, as I mentioned, we're going to take a look at the historical development of this doctrine in our, in our church. Now, before I go to the next thing, I want to just make another point. There are some who are of the idea or of the persuasion that we should not use the word Trinity because it is of Catholic origin. And so they want to avoid using that particular word. However, as Adventists, we don't avoid using a word merely because of its, where it was derived from or where it came from. But we don't use words because, uh, we may not use a word because it is not biblical. Now, when it comes to the Trinity, actually we'll see in our study today that it is actually a biblical term. And there are other terms that we use that we don't find in the Bible, such as investigative judgment. Do we see that in the Bible? We don't. There's no investigative. uh, We see a judgment that's investigative, but we don't see the term investigative judgment. We don't see the word millennium in the Bible, but we still freely use it in the description of our theology of Revelation chapter 20. We don't find the word incarnation in the Bible either. However, we still use that in our description of Christ and his coming into this world. In fact, I would even argue that as Seventh-day Adventists, we actually do believe in the word rapture or the concept of the rapture. Not the way the rest of Christendom teaches it, but we do believe in a catching up or taking away into the kingdom of heaven. As the Bible describes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So we don't reject the word merely because of its origin, but we reject it because it may be anti, it's not biblical. Now, when it comes to the word Trinity, it simply means tri-unity, three things that are united together. So let's take this to the Bible this morning and see what the Bible has to say on this particular point. Now, as we do so, let's ask ourselves the question. Notice this statement here. This is from J.N. Loughborough. He was a renowned Adventist historian, wrote the book, The Great Second Advent Movement on the History of the Adventist Church. This is what he said. He said, if... Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are each God. What did he conclude? We would, there would be what? Three gods. He was an, he was an anti-Trinitarian. He, he believed that there was one being kind of God. There wasn't God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as you see here plainly in this statement. 
Now, there were others, and we'll look at that in our third presentation. But we ask ourselves the question this morning, as a denomination, are we monotheistic or are we polytheistic? Do we believe in one God, monotheism, or do we believe in many gods, polytheism? Uh, and, and from, according to, uh, you know, J.N. Loughborough, if you believe in a Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you would have to say we're polytheistic. However, I think the Bible makes it clear for us that we are actually what we would call monotheistic believers. We believe in one God. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is what? He is one. So we, we're not Hindus. We don't, we don't worship many gods. We have one God, the Bible tells us, that we worship. Now, it's interesting, if you were to just take that one Bible passage and not look at any other scripture, you can conclude with J.N. Loughborough that there is one being that is God. However, you can't do that. As Adventists, we don't build a theology off of one Bible passage. We build it off of the weight of evidence in scripture. Now, it's interesting, when you look at this word here, the word for one Lord, that Hebrew word one is very interesting that Moses chose to use under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this Bible passage that uses the same Hebrew word, the word there that is translated into the English as one. We find it here in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. The Bible says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be what? Same Hebrew word. It's the same Hebrew word. Now, there are Hebrew words that, are, that can be translated one, mean one, one individual or one thing. But this particular Hebrew word that is used in uh, Deuteronomy and also in Genesis has the connotation of one made up of several parts. And here we see this with the development of marriage, that when two people unite their lives together, they become one flesh. Now, do they literally become one being? Of course not. They're two, still two individuals, but they have united their lives together. And that's the Hebrew word that Moses chose when he said, one God. He get, he's giving the idea in the Hebrew mind, when they read that Bible passage, they understand that it's not one being, but it is one that is made up of several parts. So somebody asks the question, well, how does one plus one plus one equal one. Last I checked in math, it didn't quite work out that way. And that's, that, that's actually a legitimate argument that you will hear some people make. How can you have one plus one plus one equal one? Well, you know, at some point, all illustrations break down, but hopefully this will help at least help us understand it a little bit in the context of what we're talking about here. In a family, I had to dig this one up, but in a family, <laughs> that was a long time ago, wasn't it? In a family, you have one father, one mother, and one child, but the three of them make a, how many families? One family, right? So you have one family, that's Evangeline, by the way. You have one family that is made up of three parts. I couldn't give you the current family picture because the illustration obviously wouldn't work. <laughs> But suffice it to say that one can be made up of several parts. And that's the, that's the concept that Moses was portraying as he said, the Lord our God is one Lord, that he is one that is made up of several parts. And we see that even in our English 
vernacular as well. Here's another passage, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. You've read this before. It says, and the Lord said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Three times we see the plurality of God mentioned in one Bible verse. And it goes on in the next verse, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So it's, it's kind of interchangeable here. You have the plurality of God, but then you have him in a singular form as well, where it says him. So we see here that the Bible is developing this idea in the very beginning of Scripture that God is plural, not singular. He's made up of several parts, not just one particular part. Here's another one. This is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22. The Bible says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, know, know it, to know good and evil. Again, is it plural or is it singular? It's plural. Here's another one. This is from Genesis as well. Genesis 11 and verse 7. Go to, this is God talking here. Go to, let what? Us go down and there confound their languages that they may not understand one another's speech. That's at the Tower of Babel. Is God described here in a singular sense or a plural sense? It's plural. And I find this very interesting that at the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, in the first 11 chapters, over and over again, we find this theme repeated that God is not singular, but he is plural. Somebody ought to say amen to that. It's laying a foundation right there, making it very plain for us to be able to see. Now, you can look at this word one in multiple different places in the New Testament, and you will find how it is being used in describing one thing that is made up of several parts. But here's another one uh, in the Old Testament, and then we'll go to some New Testament passages. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8, the Bible says this, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for? (laughs) Who will go for us? Then said I, here am I. What did he say? Send me, Lord. Send me, I will go. But what do we find? We find God describing himself in a singular or a plural sense. Plural. He says, Who will go for us? Now, as we look at this survey of the Old Testament, what we find is this. None of these Old Testament passages prove that God existed in three persons. However, they make abundantly clear that God is made up of more than what? One, right? So in the Old Testament, we don't see the three or the tri-elements so much of God. But we see very clearly in the Old Testament that God is made up of more than one part. To get the further understanding of the triunity of God, we need to go to where? The New Testament. And there are two passages that you are very familiar with that are so great at describing this and making it vividly clear for those of us that want an understanding on this particular point. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, you are familiar with this, the great gospel commission. Who is talking here? Who? Jesus is talking. And I always find it interesting when people try to contradict what Jesus says. You know, you shouldn't contradict the Bible at all. But if you're going to, you know, you really shouldn't contradict anything that Jesus says. This is a red letter. He's speaking to his disciples here. And he says, 
Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the... Just plain as day, it's written there in the Bible, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, it is interesting to note that in every known biblical manuscript that contains this part of Matthew and every early translation into other languages all contain the threefold aspect of God. So you can go to multiple different manuscripts. It's not just one manuscript, because as you know, the New Testament was translated from many different manuscripts. But, you know, you you can go to all the different manuscripts that contain this portion of the Gospel of Matthew, and you will find all of them comprising the threefold aspect of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, this is an interesting statement from the BRI, from the Biblical Research Institute. They make this comment commenting on the passage that we just read, Matthew 28, verse 19. It says, the union of these three names indicates that the Son and the Holy Spirit are what? Are what? Are equal with the Father. Listen to this reasoning. It would be rather strange, not to say blasphemous, to unite the name of the eternal God with a what? Now, remember... Those who are of the anti-Trinitarian persuasion, they believe that at some point in the distant past, in some unknown time in in the past, that Jesus was created. And it would be blasphemous to put a created being on the same level as the creator. Right? So what we find here is actually Jesus, when he says, go baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, he is leveling the playing field. He is saying that they are all of equal authority. Amen? Jesus is just as much God as God the Father is. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus and the Father are. It's a leveling of the playing field here in Matthew, the 28th chapter. Now, here's something that I found fascinating. As I was doing this research, I never read this passage before, but this is from the Spirit of Prophecy, volume 2, page 136. And she says this, The prejudice of the Jews was aroused because the disciples of Jesus did not use the exact words of John in the riot of baptism. This was before uh, Jesus' ascension into heaven when John was baptizing uh, people. It goes on. John baptized unto repentance, but the disciples of Jesus on profession of faith baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the... Isn't that fascinating? They were baptizing in the threefold name before Jesus ascended to heaven, and it would only stand to reason that they would continue that after Jesus went to heaven. This was just common understanding for the disciples that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were all equal as God and as a deity. Now, some are argue that you can't show from the Bible. The Bible says God the Father. But some argue, well, you say you can't find God the Son in the Bible or God the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting. You can't find the term God the Son in the Bible. Of course, you can't find the term God the Holy Spirit in the Bible. 
But the Bible's abundantly clear that all three of them are God. Let me just give you this real quick so you have it in your notes. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 2, the Bible says, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the Father God, yes or no? Yes, according to Scripture, he is. Notice this one, Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior who? Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ God, yes or no? Yes, the Bible says that he's looking for the glorious appearing of God, Jesus Christ, coming in the clouds of heaven. Going on, Acts chapter 5 and verse 3 and 4. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto... Is the Holy Spirit God, yes or no? Now listen, you won't find the term God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in the Bible, but that shouldn't trip you up. Because the Bible is very clear that all three of them are God. We have the Father as God, we have the Son as God, and we have the Holy Spirit. The three of them make up what Ellen White refers to as the Godhead. That's how she uses it in her writings and oftentimes how you'll see it expressed. Now, we find other places in the New Testament. I won't take time to go through them all, but I want to share one more with you. And this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. These are the final words that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church uh, right before. Uh, looks like I got ahead of myself. I sure did, didn't I? Okay, let's look at one more here before we get to that uh, first Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians passage. This is Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. And again, this is a familiar one to all of us. This is the baptism of Jesus. Now, when all these, uh, when all these people or all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized, praying, the heavens were open. So we see Jesus here, obviously at his baptism. And the Holy Ghost descending in bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my what? Beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So here we see the baptism of Jesus. It's a striking example, again, illustrating the threefold aspect of God. You have Jesus in the literal flesh standing there in the water. You have the Holy Spirit in the shape of a dove descending down upon him. And then you have the voice of God. And I find it interesting because the Bible tells us, you know, God did not take a shape here at the baptism of Christ. Because the Bible tells us that if any man sees God, what would happen to him? He would die. So God just speaks his approval upon the anointing of Jesus at his baptism. So clearly we see in the Bible again the threefold aspect of God here at the baptism of Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the passage I was referring to, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. Uh, Paul says this, the grace of the who? Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen, he says. So we see this throughout Scripture, the threefold elements of God. There are other places, and you can just jot these down. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And even Peter weighs in on this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. All three of these passages refer, refer to the threefold aspect of God, describing God not in the singular sense, but in the plur, plural sense. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that clear from Scripture or not? Are there passages that make it a little bit more difficult to understand this doctrine? Yes, there are. There are. 
There are passages that even I scratch my head at and try to understand. And even theologians scratch their head at and try to understand what is this passage talking about. But those difficult passages should not derail us from the clear passages that are very easy for us to understand. In fact, I believe you're safe if you camp out on the clear passages. Amen? You're safe if you camp out on those clear Bible passages. Now, we've nailed this down from the Bible. I think it's very clear, and we could go on, but the point has been conveyed very clearly. What I want to do now is, as we close this thing out is I want to show you from the spirit of prophecy what the servant of the Lord had to say on this particular point. And we're going to get into this more in our third presentation, but I wanted to touch on it a little bit here just so you can see the rapidity of it. This is from... Uh, the manuscript release, volume 16, page 205. She wrote this in 1901. Keep an eye on those dates, if you would. And she said this, also there would be the eternal heavenly dignitaries. Who are these? God and Christ and the Holy Spirit among them, that is the disciples, with more than moral, mortal energy and would advance with them to the work and convince the world of sin. So we see the heavenly dignitaries, the God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Here's another one. This is from Testimonies for the Church, volume 8, page 254. This was written in 1904, three years later. She says, in the great closing work, we shall meet with perplexities. Are we at that point? Yes or no? We'll meet with perplexities. Then we know uh, that we know not how to deal with. But let us not forget that the three great powers of heaven, how many great powers? Three great powers of heaven are working that the divine hand is on the wheel and that God will bring his promises to pass. He will gather from the world a people who will serve him in righteousness. Somebody ought to say amen to that. Right? So we have God, the, 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 these three great powers that are keeping their hand on the wheel, if you will, that is steering God's church by God's grace in the right direction. Those who will serve him, as she says, in righteousness. Special Testimonies, Series B, number 7, page 51. This is in 1905. She says this. We are to cooperate with the three highest powers in heaven. How many highest powers? And then she defines them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these powers will work through us, making us workers together with God. How many of you want that experience? Them working through us to be workers for God. But when a man goes forth, listen to this, in human sufficiency, then the enemy will come in and inspire him, and he knows not what manner of spirit He is of. That's a warning. And I think we're starting to see the trickle effect of this taking place in our church right now. But let it not be missed that she is talking about the three highest powers in heaven. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They are all on on equal terms in this particular statement. She goes on uh, in the same article. Special Testimony Series B, number 7, page 62 and 63, she continues and she says this. There are three living persons of the heavenly... So she's kind of being redundant, right? 
there are three in the heavenly trio, right? What's a trio made of? Made of three, right? So there are three persons of the heavenly trio in the name of these three great powers. Who are they? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized. And these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life in Christ. Somebody ought to say amen to that. We have the three greatest powers in all of heaven that are working on behalf of the salvation of men. They're inspiring us and leading us and guiding us. And she defines these three great powers as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm by no means an authority on this issue. There are some that are much more informed than I am on this particular point. But the conclusion that you can come to is only one conclusion. Based on the light of Scripture, both the Bible and also inspiration, there is only one conclusion that you can come to. And that is that the Godhead is, we do serve one God, but that God is made up of three persons. The Father who loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross, who eventually ascended up into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit as his representative to guide you and to guide me into all truth. Tread softly, brothers and sisters, on this subject. Tread softly, for we are talking about God and we must be careful and never think that we can understand what God has not revealed. We must stand with the plain passages of Scripture and not get caught up in the difficult Bible passages or in the difficult statements. Let's stick with what is plainly stated and wait until we get to the kingdom of heaven for God to give us more information. Listen, even in the kingdom of heaven, I believe when we are in the presence of God, yes, we will have a better understanding, but we will never fully understand how God operates. It's beyond our finite understanding. Even with a perfect mind, when we get to the kingdom of heaven, we will not be able to fully grasp God. And I think it ought to be that way because it gives us something to talk about and study for throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. I conclude with this statement. Review and Herald, May 2 of 1912. So we're making more progression here in time. This is just a couple of years before Ellen White died and she made this most beautiful statement that I want to leave you with And she says this, the Godhead, that's how she refers to the Trinity. She says the Godhead was stirred with pity for the race, that is the human race. What do you think of when you think of somebody being stirred with pity? Is it a a passing sorrow or passing pity? What When you're stirred with pity, it's the deepest pity that you have for someone. And she says the Godhead was stirred with pity when they looked at the human race. She says, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What did they do? They gave themselves to the working out of the what? Plan of redemption. Somebody ought to say amen to that one too. So these three, listen, the three greatest powers in all of heaven, in all of the universe, in all of all of creation, the three most powerful beings, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, are bending their minds and their energies, their time, and everything is being invested in trying to save 
fallen humanity. Oh, I don't know about you, but that makes me happy. To know that these three great powers are working on behalf of fallen men. Can you imagine what it was like for the three of them to come up with this plan of salvation? It wasn't just the, it just, it wasn't just the father being willing to send his son and the son being willing to go. But even the Holy Spirit was involved in the plan of redemption to redeem fallen man back to his rightful position. Ah, oh, we have something to rejoice with the Lord or rejoice the, uh, in the Lord for that he is working out this plan of redemption. And it's not just a God, but is the most powerful created beings who has ever existed. They are working for the salvation of man. I'm thankful for this this morning. And not only that, I'm thankful that God has made it clear in his word that he, the God of the universe, is made up of three precious beings. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And now you, probably already knew this, but now you have biblical evidence to defend your faith on this particular doctrine. Because listen to me carefully, it will not be long until you run across somebody who is of another persuasion. In fact, not too long ago, we had all of, the, all of the cars in our church parking lot where they had a book placed in the window from our friends who are of this particular persuasion that there is only God the Father and that Jesus was created at some point and that the Holy Spirit is just the Spirit of God. He's not a being like the others. On all of the cars right out there. But we have good deacons in this church. Somebody ought to say Amen. We have good elders in this church. Somebody ought to say amen. And somebody spied the book as they were coming across or something, as they were going from the school to the church, and they saw it, and they went, and they picked up all those books. And you can be thankful that you didn't have to waste your time saying, what is this stuff? Is this truth or not? Because it's not. It's not. And we can be thankful for that. God has given us a more sure word of prophecy, and we need to keep our nose in the truths of God's word and not get distracted with the fringe ideas that are out there in the world today. The devil is coming up with all kinds of things to try to derail God's people. But remember, just remember, we have this heavenly trio, the Godhead, who is working for the salvation of men. Are you thankful for that this morning? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us the clear word of God. Help us understand the truths of Scripture. Father, we ask that you will continue to guide us as we seek to know where we stand as a people. That, Lord, we wouldn't be caught up with other ideas that are outside of the bounds of your word, but that, Lord, we would seek to know the truth and the truth only. Thank you. Thank you for working on our behalf, for putting all of your energy and your infinite wisdom into the devising of this plan of redemption that we one day would have the hope of being with you in the kingdom of heaven. Bless us, Lord, I pray. Keep us faithful to you. 
I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.